If you would grab a Bible, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 is where we'll begin this period of our worship. Titus chapter 2. So good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors with us. Thank you so much for being here. That is not what I want. There we are. <laughs> Sorry, I, something clicked and I, I must have set my Bible on something and everything went crazy up here. So, Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to begin in just a moment. Good to see everyone here. We have a number of visitors. We're glad that you're here. Always want to let you know how welcome you are. We want you to feel welcome. Uh, we want to get to know you. We want to share with you in anything that we can help you with. Uh, if there's some question you have or some issue that's brought you here, whatever it is, if we can get to know you, we can help you. We'd love to do that. But thank you most of all for being here. Happy Mother's Day to those mothers among us. We want you to know how much we appreciate you and the work that you do. And uh, be sure and tell your mother you love her and you're thankful for uh, if you have that opportunity today. Uh, but it's a happy Mother's Day to everyone here. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Titus 2 and 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The hope of Christians that Paul talks about is the great appearing of the glory of Jesus, the time when Jesus comes back. But just what exactly is that hope? What are we waiting for when Jesus comes back? Daniel's done a great job of leading us of songs in songs this morning that project forward into that time when Jesus returns and the hope that we have and the excitement we have about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. But I just want to spend some time asking the question, what happens when Jesus comes back? This year, we've been revisiting the foundations where we look back at some first principles ideas. And we have talked through the life of Jesus. We've talked about Jesus' miracles. And we've talked about Jesus' death and his resurrection. And now it, it appears to me that as we close out this sort of section of our year, where we focused on some of the first principles about Jesus, that we need to talk about the, the outstanding promise, the one that we're waiting on, the return of Jesus. And I want to talk about what is going to happen when he returns. Now, to begin with, we just need to say that Jesus promised he would come back. This is Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says, When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the return of Jesus then, based on this promise and prediction of the angels, along with several things Jesus himself said, becomes the major event on the calendar of the New Testament Christian. So very often in the New Testament, when you see writers talk about things, they talk about it in terms of the return of Jesus. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 7 to 8. So that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the connection between the end and the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting on. That's what's next. That's what's going to happen. And so Paul is assuring them that God's going to take care of them until the point where Jesus returns. The passage that Cody read on the table in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is an expectation that we look forward as we remember his death, not just back to what he did, but forward to when he returns. 
1 John, uh, I'm sorry, Philippians 1 and verse 6, I'm sure of this, that you began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he's begun working in us. That's not going to end. He's going to continue it all the way to the very end when Jesus returns. 1 John 2, 28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So this talks about how you and I, when Jesus returns, are going to have a certain reaction. We're either going to shrink in shame or we're going to be confident. We're either going to be anticipating that or we're going to be dreading that but one way or another that's what's next so what happens first of all when Jesus comes back all people will be resurrected I want to begin here and talk about the resurrection from the dead let's go to John chapter 5 for a moment you will need your Bible this morning we're going to be looking at a lot of passages you always need your Bible of course but you'll need your Bible particularly because this morning we're going to be turning to a lot of places John chapter 5 beginning in verse 24 John 5 and verse 24, the words of Jesus about resurrection. John 5 and verse 24, the text says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, John 5, 25, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So sometimes when Jesus talks about life and death, his language can be vague or symbolic. And so whenever we see him talk about life and death like this, we ask the question, is he talking about physical life and death or spiritual life and death? And that's a difficult question sometimes. But there is, in this text, a very clear statement, beginning in verse 28. In verse 28, he says, All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It appears to me there's no way to misunderstand that or spiritualize that, that Jesus is saying there will be a time when all who are physically dead will rise from the dead at the insistence or at the instigation of the Son of Man. He is going to say it, they're going to rise. And he talks about two resurrections in verse 29. He talks about a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. But the descriptions are of destiny. That hooked on the knob. That was funny. Okay. Maybe I should tuck this in my pocket more. So Jesus talks about two resurrections, a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. But those are not talking about two different resurrections. He's just talking about two different destinies. That all people are going to be raised and that they're going to go to the places where their lives dictate they should go. Now, that's important. And the reason I put all people will be resurrected is not because I'm saying that those who are still alive are going to be resurrected. That's not what I mean. What I mean is it's not just the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus says that the wicked will be resurrected as well. All people will rise from the dead. That explains a little bit of how when Jesus returns, that's all going to work. This is Revelation 20. This is a rather long reading but I wanted to put it on the board here. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So the idea is there's going to be a judgment, but in order to get everybody to the judgment, everybody's got to be brought to life. So those who are dead 
are resurrected, and then they are brought before the throne to be judged, as we'll talk about in just a minute. But one of the troubles that we have when we talk about resurrection in the New Testament, talking about the return of Jesus, is that very often the only thing that's described is the resurrection of the righteous. So we don't read about the wicked, and we don't read about what really happens, the whole view, when Jesus comes back. Let me show you a couple of places here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, you remember that from when we were in our Q&A this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4 focuses then on the resurrection of believers. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words." So, as we mentioned already this morning, Paul's concern here is about those who have died already, and he wants to reassure Christians that they will be reunited with them. They're not going to go up before those who have already died. And he talks about how it's all going to happen. In verse 16, he says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So Jesus is going to come back, and then he says in verse 16, The dead in Christ will rise first. First meaning... They're going to rise before anything else happens. They're going to rise before the righteous are taken to be with the Lord. So all people will be resurrected. But you see what's happening in this text. He's not concerned about the wicked. He's not writing to comfort them about the wicked. He's writing to talk about what happens to righteous dead people. And he says what happens is when Jesus comes back, they're going to be raised from the dead. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15 is a passage that deals almost completely with the idea of the resurrection and linking the fact that Jesus has been raised to now the hope that when Jesus comes back, people will be raised because of him. First Corinthians 15 and verse 20 says, First Corinthians 15, 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. I want you to notice that in verse 20, Jesus is described as the firstfruits. And that's a very specific term. It's a term that talks about the first part of the harvest that promises that there's more of the harvest to come. So he's the first one who has been raised from the dead, but there's more coming. He's not the only fruit. He's the first fruit. So... There are more who are going to be raised when he comes. At verse 23, it says, At his coming, those who belong to Christ are going to be raised too. That's his focus, remember, because we're not really talking about the wicked dead. So, verse 24 then says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. He gives the kingdom to the Father. He has fully conquered. He has resurrected. He has defeated death. And he has all these now undead people who are proof of his victory. He submits himself to the Father and gives the kingdom to the Father. So, when Jesus comes back, there is a promise that you and I, if we have died when he returns, will be raised. There is a promise that everyone 
whether they were good or bad, will be raised. There is a promise that Christians who have died and sleep in Jesus will be raised. There is a promise that no one is going to escape when Jesus returns, the judgment that is coming and the fact that Jesus is going to give life, at least a resurrection, to all of them. So, all people will be resurrected, including you and me. And I want to point out, this is for your edification as you study the New Testament, that sometimes New Testament writers will zoom past all of this and sort of see it in a glimpse because what they're looking past is the time when Jesus comes back, there will be glory for us. Philippians 3 and verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. You see how we're not really worried about what happens to the wicked dead and how the process of all that works. It's just the anticipation. Something awesome is going to happen. We're going to be transformed. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So you can see how when we have that promise, there's anticipation. Because we look at our bodies, perhaps we look around at those we love who have died before us, and we say, there's got to be something better. And I know when Jesus comes back, There is glory for me and for those I love. So what happens when Jesus comes back? First, all people will be raised. Second, when Jesus comes back, the earth will be destroyed. Now, I need to say that a couple of times, Jesus hints at this reality. And these are just phrases that he uses. And I want to put them on the board here. They're phrases that can be interpreted in a multitude of ways. So I'm going to put them before you. Uh, First is Matthew 5 and verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And this is Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So you have a couple of expressions that hint at the fact that the earth and heaven are going to be destroyed. Do they say it clearly? No. These are what we might call uh, expressions of emphasis. Really, what both of these passages are saying is not... There's going to come a day when heaven and earth pass away. What they're saying is, you can trust my words. My words are permanent. In fact, more permanent than the most permanent thing you know, which is the universe, heaven and earth themselves. But it seems to me that these would be strange phrases if there was not this idea that is also present in some parts of the Bible that this heaven and this earth are going to pass And so no one seems to say to Jesus, now wait a minute, what are you talking about? Heaven and earth will pass away. What do you mean by that? There is no objection given because that is a part of the expectation. I want to show you where I get that. That's in 2 Peter chapter 3. So turn over there with me. 2 Peter chapter 3. There is at least, in my view, some sort of expectation laid down by these statements of Jesus that is then sort of taken further by what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. 2 Peter 3 and verse 1, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Notice that that's what we're talking about here, the coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So first of all, the destruction of the earth that's described in 2 Peter 3 is equated with the coming of Jesus. And he says, when Jesus comes back, where's the promise of his coming? That that is a question about when the Lord returns, the day of the Lord, as he describes it in verse 10. So he draws a parallel in this text to the flood. In verse 5, he says, They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. By means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So he says, remember the flood, which was not a destruction of the earth itself, but was instead a destruction of people as judgment from God. And then he says in verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So the same word that spoke the the heavens and earth into existence now has spoke that they are reserved or stored up for fire. So while we certainly see that there is judgment coming on evil people, here there also seems to be the idea, clear statements of destruction of the earth, the heavens and the earth themselves. In verse 10, that's said very clearly. It says, The heavens will pass away with the roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so Peter's question is, what sort of people ought we to be if everything that we know and experience on this earth is temporary, is soon to be destroyed? Verse 13, then he says, According to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, the idea of heaven and earth is a Jewish expression for physical existence. We would say the universe, okay, the, everything that we see and know, the heavens and the earth. And so in this way, Peter is saying that when Jesus comes back, the universe will be destroyed and a new universe, he says, new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells is where we are going to go because that, he says, is what we are anticipating. That's the promise we're holding for. There is also this statement in Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now the details of what's next aren't very clearly revealed. What will the new universe, the new heavens and new earth look like, be like? What kind of existence are we going to have there? I don't have the answers to those questions. Is it going to be a recreated earth? I don't know. But what I do know is the focus of all the passages that describe the earth being destroyed and all the passages that describe where we're going to be after that point are focused on the fact that we will be with Jesus and that righteousness will dwell there. There will not be anything evil in that place. So I can't answer all the questions about the next step of that, but I can say that there are clear statements that the the world that we know is going to be fundamentally changed and destroy. The question that leaves us with, the question of the text, what kind of people does that encourage us to be? To know that everything that we come to rely on is temporary. 
The third thing that happens when Jesus comes back is that all people will be judged. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 6 says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade others." So he says very clearly in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all receive the deeds done in the body. Give an account for what we've done. We answer for our action. And that dovetails with Jesus' emphasis all throughout his ministry on the idea of a day of judgment. Matthew 10, 15, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Notice particularly that Jesus equates this with the come, the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming, the return of Jesus. Paul talks about this, Acts 17, 30 to 31. Really, New Testament writers, there are far too many examples of the idea of the day of judgment in the New Testament that we could possibly have time to work through this morning. Acts 17 and verse 30 on Mars Hill in uh, Athens on the Acropolis, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Notice that also talks about the second coming of Christ. He's going to come again, and he is going to be there for those who are eagerly waiting for him, but it is appointed for man to die once and after that the judgment. Well, that raises a strange kind of question. What happens to Christians at the judgment? When Jesus comes back and we're going to have to answer for everything we've done, well, do you have an answer for everything you've done? I don't have an answer for everything I've done. I don't know what I'm going to say to God if I am required to give an answer for why and how and why it was justified for me to do the things that I've done. I have no answer. So do we have to answer for every deed done in our bodies? I want you to go with me to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. I think we get a glimpse a part of how that judgment scene goes, when you add in the factor of the sacrifice of Jesus and the fact that we cannot answer for ourselves, but instead we choose to have the blood of Jesus to cover us on that day. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here judgment is described as dealing with books. 
And the books, in my view, appear to be recordings of the things that we've done. But there is another book opened. It says in verse 12, which is the book of life. And particularly verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown in the lake of fire. So I believe that the meaning here is that we're all to be judged by our actions. And by that standard, we all fail. But if we are in the book of life, that changes. On my own, I fall. If I'm in the book of life, though, I have hope, I have life, not because of myself, but because of Jesus. So I don't know exactly how that's going to look. We don't have really a record of someone saying, I know I've heard popular conceptions of this where where someone says, you know, in that moment when I stand before Jesus, Jesus says, no, you're mine. I don't know how that works. But here is what I think we're intended to see from that, that we're going to answer for our actions. And our actions have consequences. And that that feeling that that brings in us is a positive feeling. It's good for us. Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Because we need to know we don't get away with things. And we need to know things don't just go away because maybe some time has passed since we did them. We need to know that God keeps a record and God knows what we've done. And that's what happens when Jesus comes back. That's why Jesus so focuses on the day of judgment. By your words, you will be justified, he says. And by your words, you will be condemned. Your words matter because all people will be judged. None of our actions just goes away. And our only hope in that day is for intervention. We're not going to come up with answers to satisfy God. We're not going to be able to say, no, I was right to do all that I've done. We need to know that's going to happen. That is an appointment that we will keep. That you will not be late and you will not be excused. And that there's only one hope on the day of judgment. And finally, all people will meet their eternal destiny when Jesus comes back. In verse 14 and 15 of Revelation 20, these verses we just read, that is described in verse 14 as the lake of fire, the second death, the lake of fire. In Revelation 21 and verse 1, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The New Jerusalem, he describes, life with God, comfort and righteousness and healing. But when Jesus comes back, we go to one or the other. We will exist forever somewhere. And this is the moment where that destiny is met and begins. But there is no indication, as I read the New Testament, that it ends. It begins here, and it is eternal. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. This will be the last passage that we turn to this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It is difficult to talk about these things with the appropriate sobriety. It's hard for me to talk about things that have to do with eternity and feel like I'm doing them justice in any way. 
because we are so bound by time. And we have unpleasant things in our lives, but they always have an expiration date. They always end sometime. Maybe they don't end until we die. But they're always just for a while. And it is hard to get our minds around eternity. But the idea of eternal punishment, of eternal suffering, of eternal torment is particularly hard for us to swallow. And so I want us to treat it with the seriousness that these words deserve. 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. When Jesus comes back, there is punishment and eternal destruction, flaming fire, taking vengeance. Very often, we as Christians, we we read those verses that say, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is the time when vengeance comes. Now, there is blessing too, there is rest for those who are afflicted, But there is also punishment, and we cannot ignore it. These people do not know God. They do not obey the gospel of Jesus. They oppress the people of Jesus, and Jesus promises he will punish. And that is the reason why very often New Testament writers talk about coming wrath. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Hell is the place where the wicked are punished. It is the outer darkness. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a place of torment. It is a lake of fire. And Jesus says no one can pass from the place of torment to the place of comfort. It's not as if we redeem ourselves and come out of the suffering. It is eternal. Our fates are sealed when Jesus comes back. But when Jesus comes back, it is also the time when the righteous meet their eternal destiny. That is described as the joy of their Lord, the presence of the Lord, to always be with the Lord. And there is one passage that particularly sings to me on this topic. It's 1 John 3 and verse 2, where John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him. As he is. As horrible as the idea of eternal punishment is. The idea of eternal glory. The idea of eternal comfort. The idea that I can see him as he is. Is enthralling. It's exciting. And so that feeling that you have right now, hopefully. Uneasiness. Discomfort can be balanced with this feeling of hope and excitement and joy. Have you thought about what it will be like to see Jesus? 
we will see him as he is. We will be like him. I believe that's a reference to the transformation of our bodies. And we'll have a body like his glorious body. We'll be able to see him, truly see him, for the first time. What it's like to say, you know, I've walked by faith my whole life. And I can see him. Have you thought about it? Have you thought about what you'll say? I don't mean the questions you have. We all have questions. I don't think the first thing out of my mouth, if I have a mouth, is going to be a question. Have you thought about what you'll feel in that moment? The feeling that it'll all be worth it. Everything that you've experienced. The difficulty that you've had because you tried to serve him. That yearning you have because it wasn't, it wasn't quite what you thought it would be. There was always the gap that faith had to jump. When the faith will finally be sight. Have you thought about what it will be like to be with the Lord forever? No more tears, no more pain, no more death. No more regret, no more insecurity, no more sadness. When Jesus comes back, it is the blessed hope of Christians that someday we're going to meet our eternal destiny and it will be far better than what we have experienced here. That's our hope. Now the point of all of this is that what happens when Jesus comes back affects how we live now. What kind of people ought we to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men God commands all men everywhere to repent. Everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. The point is, are we ready? Are we ready? If you knew that at the end of the day today, somebody had followed you around with a video camera, maybe it's a hidden camera so you wouldn't be playing for the camera, and you knew that everything you did, everything you said, everything you thought was going to be played back for you at the end of the day and somebody is going to ask you about everything you did and said and thought today. Would it change the way you acted and thought and talked? If you knew that people would know and that somebody was going to call you to account, wouldn't it change you? You will be called to account. Maybe not today. But we will answer. And I urge you, wherever you are in your spiritual life today, if you're outside of Christ, if you've drifted from Him, I want you to answer the question for yourself. Am I ready? And if you need to make a change, let this song be the driving force for you as we stand and sing to encourage you.